You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to a new episode. And today, yes, it is that time for the third annual sub-all-star team. Sub-all-star podcast? What do I call that normally? Anyway, today we're going to go over the quote-unquote sub-all-stars, the players who are in that next tier of player after the guys who are recognized on the all-star team, of course, my selection for all-star team doesn't always overlap with the NBA's official team, uh, so we'll just we'll mention that as we go through, and then we'll get to, you know, usually comes out to be like the top 50 guys in the league. So if there's 25 all-stars, players 25 through 50, that next bracket of players who historically um, are often just grouped in with all the other non-all-stars when people try to look at rosters and count up the stars and things like that. So that's always fun and exciting. I'm getting excited for the 2021 playoffs, which are right around the corner and looking like a completely wild and wide open bracket. I hope the audio sounds okay in here. I'm recording in a new location today, perhaps a, a temporary location if I can find uh, another room. I just moved. Yeah, it's been it's been a crazy couple weeks. Um, since we're going for the third annual, I, I always love this podcast and the response is really good. We might as well go old school and start with a story, start with a little anecdote. Um, among the crazy things that has happened to me in the last couple of weeks, I went to get the vaccine for the COVID-19, the COVID-19 vaccine, went to get the first shot of two and we pull into the, it's an outdoor driving pod. You do it in your car. You roll down the window. I roll down the window. Uh, the nurse is there, you know, when they, they administer these shots every couple minutes all day long. So they're incredible. And, and I'm, I'm fine with needles. It's really comfortable. Roll down the window, uh, roll up your sleeve. They give you the shot. And then they move you to an area for observation. So I get the shot and I'm feeling a little lightheaded right away when I get it. So I have a quick like swig of water. Uh, and then I hear someone say, move to lane 10. Uh, that's where we're supposed to pull up to the, where you get the shot and the observation aren't that far apart. It's like 50 feet or something like that. So you pull up into the observation area and I, in retrospect, things already weren't going well in my system because I think sort of like under my breath, as my wife fortunately was driving, she was headed toward lane 10. And under my breath, I said something like, lane 10, go to lane 10, as if she wasn't already driving to lane 10. But I was kind of, again, starting to feel a little off. 
had a drink of water, feeling a little lightheaded. And then when we pull in to the observation station, um, my sort of entire right arm where I got the shot was getting really tingly, which I didn't think too much of at the time. And then my chest started to get really tingly. And then my left arm started to get really tingly. And in retrospect, I hear this, this voice that says something like, I, I know we're going to observation. So the voice says something like, if you're having a reaction, let us know. And as we pull in, I also start to get, uh, in addition to being really lightheaded, like a little nauseous, um, like a little queasy, like I wasn't sure if I was going to throw up or something. So I instinctively open the door and I, I might have had one leg out the door and I said, again, just like mumbling under my breath, um, I said, hearing that voice in my head, I said, I'm having a reaction. Um, um, although I'm sure it was more mumbled and, and slower than that. And then I passed the fuck out. So if you've ever lost consciousness like this or fainted like this, you probably had a similar experience where as it's happening, you don't really realize you're losing consciousness at all. And then even when I kind of started to come back online, I didn't realize I had lost consciousness. I just, it was totally normal for me at that point in time to be laying backwards. I guess they had reclined the seat um, so I could, I could lay down just to be laying backwards with like five or six voices around me. Um, and this didn't really have anything to do with the vaccine per se. Uh, it's, this is something that I've had for, I've known about for probably 20 years where I have a reaction. It's called a vasovagal reflex or response. Um, and my vagus nerve gets overly stimulated. That's why I get a little nauseous. And basically your blood pressure and your heart rate uh, completely plummet and you can pass out. And it usually happens to me when I like draw blood or something. So I've learned to to avoid passing out from drawing blood by laying down, but I've never had a reaction to any kind of shot or vaccine before. Um, so I didn't really connect those dots or think it was an issue. Fortunately, my wife knows about this. So once the doctor came in and said it might be vasovagal, um, she was she was pretty calm. Meanwhile I, meanwhile, I didn't know what was going on. I'm just in the seat. Someone gave me a Gatorade. There's a guy rubbing my leg. I, I don't know what's happening. So that was uh, that's my vaccine story. 2021 sub all stars. Let's start uh, first with just guys who I think are at all star level. We'll go through almost all of them very quickly in no particular order. I think I have 25 or 26 just clear all star level players for me this season Nikola Jokic, James Harden, Giannis. LeBron, Kawhi Leonard, Luka Doncic, Kyrie Irving, Steph Curry, Joel Embiid, Paul George, Jimmy Butler, Chris Paul, Chris Middleton, Dame Lillard, from Utah, Mitchell and Gobert, Ben Simmons, Zion Williamson, Bam Adebayo, Mike Conley, Trey Young, Jamal Murray, Jason Tatum, Devin Booker, Carl Anthony Towns. Let's talk about Brad Beal. His first five seasons in the league, he shot 40% from downtown. His last four seasons, almost a similar volume, you know, not a huge change in 
his three-point volume. He's shooting 36%. And obviously that's not problematic. That's not below the Mendoza line or anything like that. That's solid. But there is a difference, I think, in terms of what his actual shooting has been from outside and his long two numbers um, are similar. They don't suggest that you know his three-point shooting is just in a in a rut and it's going to catch up uh without being a really top shelf shooter and playing that way I do think he's giving away some value because he doesn't generate a ton of easy high percentage offense and therefore his overall efficiency is kind of only around league average so just for comparison uh he shoots 66 percent at the rim And takes a little bit more there than Steph Curry, who also shoots 66% at the rim. They're both solid in the mid-range. Beal actually takes more mid-range jumpers than Curry. Takes about twice as many per possession, hitting them at 48%. But the three-point shooting, when you're Steph Curry and you shoot at that volume at 43%, and Brad Beal shoots him at, this year, more like 35%, that makes a massive difference in your overall efficiency profile. And so uh, Beal, 30 points per 75 possessions, about 2% ahead of the league on his true shooting efficiency this year, where Curry is 32 points per 75 possessions, 10% of the league. So, of course, Curry is a gold standard here. This doesn't really say bad things about Beal at all, in my opinion. It's just the difference between, hey, when I attack this way, um, what does a drop in three-point shooting mean like that at this volume? I've made the connection to batting average in baseball or on-base percentage in baseball, and it's getting to the point where players shoot so many threes that if you're consistently 35 or 36%, that's a pretty, pretty big drop-off from that kind of volume at 39 or 40%. The bigger issue, of course, with Beal, I mean, he's, he is a good offensive player. I don't think that's up for much debate. The bigger issue is his defense and just how much he's bleeding on that end. In fact, his sort of uh, plus-minus family of metrics in the last few years has been very pedestrian because of, uh, largely, we it looks like, because of his defense. And so when I look at him on film, there's clearly lackluster possessions or issues, but he also doesn't look like someone who is a complete train wreck on that end. And so... Uh, I'm still going to say Bradley Beal is an all-star level player, although I think these next couple of guys I'm going to discuss, as I'm taking the time to discuss them, the conversation is more interesting. When I went to map out the sub-all-star team this year, I kind of started with these guys because they're on the fringe of like, are these guys clearly all-stars? I mean, Beal feels like a guy who's an all-NBA type talent on the offensive end, but what other things are going on there specifically on defense two more guys here that I would put in the all-star category one I feel like I mentioned every year and that's Draymond Green and what to do with him because he's had injuries or is he better in the playoffs but I think this year his regular season defense has been good enough kind of anchoring what they're trying to do in Golden State around Steph Curry on offense and You know, Draymond's offense leaves a lot to be desired, but his passing and and kind of playmaking in the sense of a very old school, almost Rondo-like point guard where the scoring is problematic, his shooting is problematic, but his ability to pass 
uh, and kind of orchestrate that system on offense doesn't make him too big of a negative. If you put him on other teams, of course, you don't want him to be the second or third best offensive player. He can't realistically be the second or third best offensive player, but he's a great piece that scales up next to he gets more valuable with his passing and intelligence and these little uh, decisions to attack mismatches or screen or things like that. So add it all up to me. And when you have sort of defensive level of the year, defensive player of the year kind of impact that he does, that still is basically an all-star basketball player. So I'm going to, I'm going to put green in that category. And another guy that I've, I think I had him last year, right on the sub all-star side of this line this year. I I've got him on the all-star side of this line. He's always been right on the fringe to me. And that's Drew Holiday in Milwaukee. I know there are a lot of people who are much higher on Drew and have seen him as being like an all NBA type guy. I like a lot of his game. Um, I just, I'm not necessarily certain how much value his defensive, his defensive impact gives you relative to his skill as a man defender. Uh, some of his, his man defensive talent and his strength with his core and his lower body switching up to play different guys and, and stop on ball penetration can just be so good at times, of course. And then on offense, he has nice thing, you know, he has certain passes that he makes very well. He can hit threes. So just always been a really good basketball player since he's been in, in his prime now for the last couple of years. And let's just call him an all-star. Let's just put him on that side of the line. With all of the injuries and the craziness this season, this feels harder than ever. I feel like just with the all-stars, I've probably agitated more people than normal. You know, you do a you do a podcast and you list your all-stars and people are going to get upset about snubs, especially fan bases where the tendency is to view your home players in the highest possible light. Um, and if that's the case, then there's, you know, 47 all-stars in the league instead of 25 or 30. So before I upset everyone even more, let's have something fun. Let's talk about getting some free meals with HelloFresh. If you've listened to the show, you know how much I enjoy HelloFresh and cooking at home and the entire process that they provide. Go to HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball12 and use the promo code ThinkingBasketball12 and you'll get 12 free meals, including free shipping. And I've talked about how easy the process is before where you go and you select a bunch of different meal options based on calorie preference, vegetarian, things like that. They ship it to you right at the door. You don't have to do anything, no contact. And then 15, 20 minutes later, you put together the meal to give these great instructions. Another thing I may not have mentioned that I really like is because of the way their service is set up, they have been found to be 28% cheaper than just going to the grocery store and shopping and 72% cheaper than going to a restaurant. So check it out, hellofresh.com slash thinkingbasketball12. Enter the promo code thinkingbasketball12. And that's a great way to support this show and try some fun, new, tasty meals. Okay, back to agitating everyone. Is that where I was? Uh, The 2021 sub all-star team. I usually do this by positional category. So let's do the same thing. Let's do our smalls. Let's do our wings. And we'll finish up with our bigs. Starting with the smalls. uh, I think if he was healthy, 
Kemba Walker would certainly be in this range, if not even higher, uh, although age and that knee are starting to take a toll. But he's just been injured too much and inconsistent. So I'm going to put him in one of those injury notation categories that I, I point out quite a bit. Kristaps Porzingis also probably falls in that category when we get to the big men. But staying with the smalls, for me, uh, a familiar name on this list, CJ McCollum in Portland. Now, even though CJ has also missed time, he's going to be by far uh, the guy with the fewest minutes on this list, just over a thousand minutes played. Uh, it's still, he's a mainstay on this team. I think his quality of play has been there on offense, the skill. And if you look at his, just take like raw plus minus um, his net on off since 2016, he's plus 3.5, which is kind of what you would want or expect from a player in this tier. If you're over a larger sample and we don't think you have too many confounders, uh, if you're an all-star, you might be plus five or plus six or something like that. But consistently a, a positive in plus minus stats, impact metrics always kind of have him in this range. And on the season, he's up to his usual 25 points per 75, right around league average. He's never able to generate really efficient stuff at the rim, but 40% three-point shooter, really good from the mid-range. You guys know the deal. Um, another kind of no-brainer guard for me here is Fred Van Fleet from uh, Toronto. Everything in Toronto is off the rails this season. And in fact, I'm going to say the backcourt in Toronto, Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry are here. I, I would love to go to war with Kyle Lowry, although age is, is becoming a concern. He's 35. Uh, I'm not sure he can sustainably play at the level he's played at in previous seasons, but if playing in Tampa and injuries and all the other crazy things that have happened this season weren't an issue, I would think I'd still have him at the all-star level. But even with those things, I mean, it's Kyle Lowry. He's still a pesky defender, excellent passer, shooter. He can score a little bit. I mean, he's just it's been such a good basketball player for such a long time with so many indicators there. And Van Vliet, some similarities. Uh, obviously a, a sturdy and pesky defender a good shooter for a number of years. He's added to the the drive game. Uh, these are just guys that I like in this area. Van Vliet, um, you know, as an example of someone who doesn't really have the overall package to consistently get himself in that sturdy all-star level range, but he's the type of player who can definitely be your fourth or fifth best player on a really, really high-level team. He's just always adding positive value. And even though right now he's a slightly negative scorer, I still, in terms of his efficiency, I should say, he's, he's a couple percentage points below league average. I still think of him, uh, especially with his ability to pass and defend, uh, I still think of him as a sub-all-star type player. Some easier ones that I won't belabor. Uh, De'Aaron Fox... Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and Ja Morant. I don't know if I, I'm certainly not comfortable saying any of these guys are solid all-stars yet. I've done videos on them in the last few years. They're, they're really exciting point guards all in their own right. Shea, you could say, is more of a combo guard or something like that. And I'm not going to push back on anybody who says, well, I think I already have them at the all-star level. I'm just not comfortable enough. I haven't gone deep enough into anything that they may have added this year. But what I've seen from them in limited time this year and all their 
indicators, uh, both in terms of like rate stats, where they're scoring from, what their passing profile looks like, their impact metrics all in all in one numbers. Uh, they all kind of still look like they're in this class for me. And with some of these guys, you kind of have players that peak. I always use Lamar Odom as the classic sub all-star example. You have really skilled players who just aren't great enough defensively or just don't have the overall package or that one superstar skill on offense to get their aging curve to level off at an all-star. So instead of being a five or seven time all-star in the middle of their career, they're a six or eight time sub all-star. Essentially, they just consistently play at this level. And it's possible that one or two of those point guards that I just mentioned, those young up and coming point guards may kind of plateau right around there. So I don't have a problem with having these guys return to this level. I think I've had um, two, if not all three of these on the team recently, but I'm not ready to graduate them uh, into the all-star class yet, although I do expect continued improvement from those three guys. Malcolm Brogdon is a, another small on the sub-all-star team. And then the final one for me, uh, boy, this was painful. I- I've had him on the team the last two years. I'll have him here again. And that's Marcus Smart from the Celtics. His shooting isn't quite where it's been the last couple seasons. And with everything crazy going on in Boston this year, I'm not sure his defense, at least in the regular season, is quite where it's been in the past. And so you could maybe make an argument that uh, players are so close together and fragile at this level that that means he's not a top 50 player this season. Really, this has just been a painful, painful exercise. I usually look at about 65 or 70 guys for this podcast for this sub all-star team and I feel like this year I was wandering out into the 80th and 85th best player and and trying to figure out the pros and cons of guys and so many players have missed time or been in weird situations with trades and things like that so uh, I'm going to stick with all reliable and and keep Marcus Smart on the team so the smalls are McCollum, Van Vliet, Smart, Lowry, Malcolm Brogdon and then those three crazy young exciting point guards Darren Fox, uh, Shea Gilders-Alexander, and John Morant. I keep calling Shea a point guard, although a lot of people will see him as a combo. I'm just keeping him in this small category because the wings are, I mean, it's the modern NBA. They're they're wingier, much wingier players than Shea Gilders-Alexander. I expect a number of comments about my circular reasoning there. The reason Shea is not a wing is because these other players are wingier. Who Who's wingier? Who's a wingier all-star? Um... Let's start with some of the easier ones in this category. I talked about him last year. I believe I had him on the sub-all-star side of the line. And although he's probably having his best season overall, I think his offense certainly looks better. I don't know if his defense is at the same level. So I'm going to keep Jalen Brown right here in this strong sub all-star category. Again, just another one of these guys where if you give him the benefit of the doubt, of course you can say Jalen Brown is an NBA all-star. But if we do that with a lot of guys, we're going to have 35 or 40 all-stars. And I'm not sure that's the direction. I already feel like I'm very liberal with having, you know, 28 or 30 all-star level players every season. And I think it would be cool, by the way, to expand the all-star roster if we no longer have just 12, 12 players on a team like we had in the 80s and 90s for such a long time, you know, maybe a 14 or 15 man 
all-star team uh, would be more reflective of the incredible depth of talent at the top of the league. Okay, next up in this category, another player I've been kind of traditionally lower on, but he does very well with Doc Rivers utilizing him. And he's just playing really well this year, um, even on both sides of the basketball when I watch them play. And that's Tobias Harris, just one of these classic sub all-star players where doesn't have the overall equipment to get to that next level. But you put him on a good team and he's still doing really good things and he's providing all this secondary stuff on offense. And yeah, so Harris, um, who did I have? Brown. From the Utah Jazz, man, I feel like the whole Jazz team, I mean, the Jazz just feels like they're filled with top 75 players, really good players. I ended up not having Royce O'Neal. I just think you give up too much on offense, and he's not that, you know, Ben Simmons kind of uh, really, really huge wing defender presence. But I do like Royce O'Neal. I like the way he's playing. You have to like Jordan Clarkson off the bench there. But it's Joe Ingles for me with the uh, sub-all-star nod here. Ingles, of course, shooting 492% from the three-point line, roughly. Uh, let me see what it is. He's, he's 14% ahead of the league in true shooting. And so when you combine his passing, I've always had Ingles sort of in this conversation. I can't remember if I had him on both of the last two teams, but He's always just a really positive impact player, not super athletic, but a smart defender, a big body, uh, can play secondary pick and roll, can create offense, good extra passer, uses his height. And then when you're not really taking anything off the table and shooting 49% from three, that's what the number is, not 490%. I got a little confused. Um, <laughs> you're you're just perfect for this class. You're, you're really, really good, and you're not going to find – you know, you're not going to easily be able to name 50 players you'd rather have on a team, especially because it's so important to be able to add value if you're not a superstar next to other good players. And Ingles is just tailor-made for that. Okay, the next two guys make me uneasy. The first one more so than the second one. The first one, I also believe I had him on the team last year, and that's Brandon Ingram. And I've, I've talked enough about Ingram where I don't have to belabor the point that I think his defense is lacking and uh, as many skills as he has on offense, nice shooter, nice scorer, it's still, I still feel like there could be something missing if you put him next to other really good players. In other words, he, he's not necessarily enhancing other good players, really good players at that, at that high level of the playoffs, or um, himself getting better, you know, being put next to another guy and getting better. He still has positive scoring efficiency on on pretty big volume, about 26 points per 75. And of course, he can make some passes. So we are talking about a very skilled offensive player right now. He's still shooting around 38% from three again on this season. So he's he's really skilled offensively. But guys like that sometimes who don't have impact metrics that look kindly on their overall value or that their defense is always lagging behind. It's always a bit concerning for me, but I think in this season, again, I'm going to give Ingram the nod kind of in that Lamar Odom vein, like feels like one of those guys that's not an all-star, but also is pretty comfortably in that next class of player. The other player in this category who I was thinking of, 
is Zach Levine. And Levine, very similar to Ingram, tremendous offensive talent. Uh, the defense is always a concern. These guys are playing on teams where the offense isn't that great or you're wondering if you made them a, a clear number two or number three uh, on a more championship competitive type offense what their games would look like but of course Levine's such a good slasher and the shot making uh, similar to Ingram and the outside shooting that has come along I mean Levine is over 40 percent from downtown on volume uh, he's not quite the passer Ingram is in my assessment but his rim pressure I mean 28 points per 75 on plus six percent relative true shooting yeah that's that's monster stuff that that is um, right up there with some of the better scores in the league and then you have the playmaking and so I I think overall with Levine I mean he made his first all-star team this year and I think that's understandable I I may change my mind I plan on taking a a deeper look at him in the next few weeks so it's possible I I kind of move him up to all-star but you know right now he's one of these guys that um, it feels hard to not include him when you start listing out your top 45 or 50 players in the league just so much offensive talent speaking of offensive talent I really like what Michael Porter Jr. has been doing in Denver so he is my next wing on this team his off-ball game his shot making his shooting is he's shooting like 43 percent from downtown 22 points per 75 on plus eight percent efficiency he's a decent cutter uh, gets some synergy with Jokic playing off the ball just really it kind of reminds me of that like Michael Red category right now where you know you're not expecting too much on defense he doesn't have the playmaking but his ability to score and shoot and do some of this without the ball uh, that's a really really nice third weapon on offense on a high level offense and and even without Jamal Murray as the Nuggets keep trucking on um, assuming they get some of their other guards to to keep the cutting and the flowing and and the outside shooting uh, the team has been ravaged by injury recently if you haven't been following them but assuming they get those guys back the offense with Porter and Jokic has been spectacularly successful this year Michael Porter Jr.'s on-court offensive rating uh, when he's on the floor the Nuggets offensive rating is almost 124. Let's take a deep breath to realize we're we're now living in a brave new world where and of course that's Jokic but it's like team's best players now have offensive ratings in the 120s in the mid 120s Uh, the the Clippers with Paul George and Kawhi are around 123 124 as well I mean are we going to see 130 is there going to be an offense where the best players when they're on the floor put up 130 points per 100 possessions I don't know this is this is getting crazy Uh, anyway back to the sub all-star team I think Porter Jr.'s offensive value there and he treads water you know he's probably a negative on defense but he uses his size he rebounds he occasionally blocks shots I don't think he gives up enough on defense for him to move out of this category so he's someone that's incomplete as a player Uh, I wouldn't want him driving my primary decision making or doing a lot of on-ball playmaking and of course you give up something on defense but the overall value to me is in this class so he's next on the team all right, four more wings, and then we'll hit the bigs and finish this up. And the, the four remaining wings are kind of interesting. There's a lot of 3 and D guys in the league right now that are really good, that 
are probably, if I had a draft board, they'd be in my top 100. I'd want to construct, you know, the role, fill out the fill out the rosters on good teams with them. And a guy sitting in this category, but is like a super th- three and D player right now, is Mikel Bridges in Phoenix, and just one of these players that doesn't take a lot off the table on offense is a fantastic shooter and cutter, and then defends at the other end. And right now he's 15 points per 75 on plus 7% true shooting. Again, another one of these players shooting over 40%. Um, just a really nice, well-rounded player that's probably so good. He, he at least for me right now, bumps himself up, uh, assuming we give him credit for really nice defensive value on the other end, bumps himself up past that really solid, strong role player group into the sub all-star group. The other defender in this category, and in a way I'm more comfortable with him because I think he's still probably one of the top 10 or 15 defenders in the league. And when you have that value, as I mentioned with Draymond Green, you you don't need too much on offense. You can be a negative on offense and still be an all-star or sub-all-star type player. And he's a guy who shoots threes, doesn't take too much off the table. He's an okay extra passer, but you're not looking for him to score. He just defends and shoots threes on the other end, and that's Robert Covington with the Blazers. Fun Covington stat, in raw on-off, just plus-minus data, he's been a positive in every year of his career going back to 2014, and I believe he's near the top of the league in that category. Again, always does really well in impact numbers and sort of uh, one-number metrics and things like that. Next up is Gordon Hayward. I talked about him last year, uh, a big body on defense, versatile, and then still offensive skills with secondary playmaking, passing, shooting, the ability to fit in next to other players. He, when healthy, still just is kind of right in that area, has played pretty well when he's been healthy this year in Charlotte. I actually considered LaMelo Ball, I considered... Lonzo Ball, um, it was agonizing, some of these final spots, because there are a lot of players that are very, very similar that you could put in here, but they all feel like they have flaws that kind of keep them from the the true spirit of this level of play, that this team. So OG Ananobi, for instance, was someone I took a long, hard look at based on his defense, um, I'm not sure his offense is where I want it to be. He's one of the the final cuts or one of the players I considered, but the guy kind of went with for the final wing spot and essentially the final spot on the team, which it feels like cheating a little bit, is Joe Harris. And the reason I say it feels like cheating is because he doesn't feel like a top 50 player to me, but then you have to remember that he may legitimately be like a 46% three-point shooter running running around without the ball, and he's a good cutter. And that kind of, even though he's not able to run around the court like Kyle Korver or J.J. Redick or something like that, so I don't think he's going to be that level of offensive player, that kind of offensive player in today's game is not only just obviously super scalable, it fits everywhere, it's a great secondary piece, but... His off-ball movement and ability to cut and backdoor and just comfort playing like that is going to fit on more and more offenses with space. He's going to be deadly with passers and any offense that utilizes 
motion and movement like that. And on offenses that aren't as motion and movement heavy, you're just going to get, oh, a 45 or 46% spot-up three-point shooter. So uh, I'm cheating in the sense that um, I don't feel comfortable with it, but the fact that he's having like just such a bonkers shooting season like Joe Ingles makes me go with Joe Harris here for the for the final wing spot. Now, you may have noticed that players like DeMar DeRozan are missing from this list. DeRozan was here last year. DeMar DeRozan, this is becoming harder and harder for me to really kind of overlook in the sense of just constantly saying that he's going to be uh, a player that moves the needle on a good team. And the more I think about what he would look like as a third option, a fourth option on a high-level championship team on offense, the more I struggle with this. DeMar DeRozan's teams have been better with him on the bench in every single year of his 13-year career except one. And I mentioned C.J. McCollum in the last uh, five years or so since 2016, the last six years. Uh, plus 3.5 just in in raw, net on, off, those long-term samples. When we don't think there are too many confounders, you'll kind of start sorting out um, the approximate ranges of, you know, your your superstars will be around plus 10 or plus 12, and your next tier stars will be plus 7 or plus 9. So over a long term, it's nice to see a guy at plus 3 or plus 4, especially talking about a sub-all-star team. DeMar DeRozan, since 2016, his on-off in 15,000 minutes is minus 4.2. And and those kinds of things are concerning in the sense of saying, would I want him over, let's take another guy who who was a finalist here for a wing spot, Nic- Nicola Batum. Like, who would I rather have? Well, Batum, especially the way he's playing, he's another guy who I could have said, hey, the way he's playing this year might just warrant a spot whether at the end of the year you would put him in this next 24 if you had a draft board or something. But would I rather have Batum shooting um, IQ on defense and passing versus DeRozan's kind of mid-range isolation rim pressure and, and needing to have the ball more to create more of his value and that value that he creates um, because he's not a, a great passer, because he's not a great shooter, because he's not a high efficiency volume scorer, uh, that volume, uh, that value on offense from his scoring in and of itself isn't that great. Uh, I don't know. And I, I think I'd rather have Batum. I think I'd rather have maybe even some of the role players. I think I might rather have a guy like, Ananobi on a team. So that's where I'm at lately. I mean, I've I've been a DeRozan defender and and trying to sort of continue to see the value in a lot of the things that players like that do. But at this point in time, I'm not sure. I really wanted to get a, a team of 24. I was really comfortable with this year and I couldn't quite get to 24 guys. Um, you'll also notice that someone like Russell Westbrook isn't on the team. If you, if you haven't noticed, Russell Westbrook's scoring game and his shot have essentially completely falling, fallen apart. He's seven percentage points below league average. The league shoots 57% in true shooting right now, and he's around 50%. So he's got the scoring efficiency, taking a lot of shots and missing a lot of shots. He's got the scoring efficiency of a, a solid player from 1965. 
Can he still create offense by pressuring the rim? Sure. I mean, he's one of the, in a way, he's one of the all-time greats at at doing that. But it's not as effective as it used to be when he was more explosive and, frankly, had a, had a shot that worked better, even though it wasn't great. And now in today's game, lacking a shot and kind of wanting to eat up so many possessions with the ball the way he does, uh, not a guy I'd rather have over basically any of the players I've mentioned. Let's finish up with the bigs because there were a ton of bigs that I kind of wanted to slot in here. You know what? After talking through that, I think I feel more comfortable with Batum over Harris for that final spot. So I'm going to switch it. We're going to have Nick Batum in the final wing spot over Joe Harris. Okay, now some bigs. Jeremy Grants had some improvement after some solid play in Denver last year. Didn't think it was quite enough. Another guy, John Collins, has always been kind of in my sub-all-star radar. I'm still concerned about him on the defensive end. Christian Wood is a guy, I think, who belongs in this conversation from Houston. And, in fact, Christian Wood was someone who I considered for the final spot on this list instead of Joe Harris. If you aren't familiar with Christian Wood, he's pretty good. Um, has some defensive talent, some defensive instincts, length, a decent amount of mobility on that end. So you'll see kind of positive impact there, usually when you look at data or when you watch a, a game. And then on offense, he can at least shoot threes. He can attack closeouts. He has some semblance of, of scoring versatility. Not that great. But, you know, when I think of like a, a Paul Millsap as a benchmark, for like a really nice sub all-star player the last few years, uh, later in his career, um, some of the moments he had in the playoffs, for instance, I still think someone like Wood has has a couple levels, a couple um, more reps in his bag before he gets to that kind of impact. So the six big men I ended up going with, oh, I really wanted to... Uh, find a spot for Jakob Pertl just because of his defense, but I don't, his offense leaves something to be desired, and I don't think his defense is quite there, so uh, the six big men I went with, I was all pretty comfortable with. Let's start with the most, now let's finish with the most controversial. Let's start with one of the easiest, Clint Capella in Atlanta. I've talked about him uh, at this level of play in the past. Rim finishing doesn't take much off the table. Offensive rebounding, you have to like that. And then his defensive impact and his ability to uh, protect the rim and muck up stuff in the paint has been good this year for Atlanta. He's been a great fit. It was a pretty easy choice for me. Um, Nikola Vucevic, Demonis Sabonis, Pascal Siakam. These are all guys that are somewhere in the sub-all-star range for me fairly comfortably. I think maybe Vucevic and Sabonis because of their defense are larger question marks, but he certainly put them in the right situation and they have so much offensive skill, both of those players, that they should be able to add good offensive value uh, next to you know reasonably constructed um, teams. And then another guy from Indiana who I, I've liked defensively for a while, and I think his defensive impact this year is strong enough to warrant him being on this team, and that's Miles Turner. And that leaves the final spot on the sub-all-star roster, and in a way the first spot, because I just wasn't 
convinced about putting him on the all-star team, if you noticed, and that's Julius Randle. Also, by the way, I don't think I mentioned Anthony Davis just because he missed so much time. Obviously, Anthony Davis is an all-star level player for me, but he wasn't even in my player filters when I started building this team uh, because he had, had missed so many minutes um, or missed so many games. His minutes were so low. But back to Randall. So I like what Randall's done a lot. I think he's getting... There's a pattern in NBA history. It goes back to Allen Iverson in 2001. Um, it's probably happened before then. It's certainly happened since then. Derek Rose with his MVP in 2011. And there's nothing wrong with those seasons. Those are perfectly good or great players. But there's a pattern in NBA history where a team overperforms, usually um, comes out of nowhere with defense, and instead of distributing credit to the, to the defensive stars on the team, instead of looking at it as it takes a village, uh, five men connected, instead of crediting the coach, the leading scorer on offense tends to get the credit. And those teams don't have a lot of offensive talent or else they would have been pegged in the preseason as teams that were expected to win way more games. And so they surprise you with defensive talent. And if there's an individual player on offense that carries a little bit more of the load or is clearly the best offensive player, that player gets a dis a hugely disproportionate amount of the credit for the team's overachievement. In this case, that's Randall. Now, if you're a Knicks fan and you're tending to give your home player the benefit of the doubt and see him in the rosiest possible light as you do, uh, or as, as fans are, are likely to do, um, and you're saying, Ben, come on, Randall's an all-star. Sure. Uh, I think viewed through an optimistic lens, he obviously has played like an all-star this year. And certainly if you buy into him being like a 42% three-point shooter, I think, yeah, you're probably looking at an all-star. I'm not super impressed with his defense, although I am happy to see because he's been a skilled offensive player, often coming off the bench and pouring in a bunch of points in his stops over the last few years. So I am happy to see his defense look a little better. But when I watch the Knicks, he still doesn't look like the difference maker on defense. He doesn't look like a, a key driver of this defense. It's the other bigs and wings and um, the coaching and the scheme and everyone buying in. And that includes Randall. Randall has, has bought in, which is really nice to see. And he's, you know, he's headier out there. He's in spots that he should be in and making contests and rotations that he should make. And so I don't see him as some sort of problem on defense. On offense, I think it's unlikely he's legitimately a 42% three-point shooter. Now, some of his shot making out of, you know, that those fadeaways that he throws up, I mean, they are ridiculous. And I think that's probably a, a realistic thing that he has and of course the passing and some of his driving has improved this year but it's the kind of thing where I look at him and I'm like do I want him to be the number one on any reasonable offense and no I, I don't what happens when he's the number two what does that look like I still don't have a great feel for what that looks like when he's the number two or the number three I think it looks closer to what he was doing in previous seasons that's where I get a little stuck with him. And as I say all this, I'm, I'm saying I sat here and, and considered him for a while 
as one of the final all-star spots in the league. So I think if you think, oh, Julius Randle's like the 25th best player in the league, I'm not sure we disagree too much. I'm just always wary about a hot season or a situation that kind of looks like the perfect situation from the perspective of a player's narrative. You know, him getting a lot of credit, the things he does getting a, 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 a veneer, you know, oh, Randall's three-point shooting, his his uh, playmaking has improved, his, his, you know, fadeaways that he throws up, like all of that getting seen in the best possible light. And what we forget is most players aren't seen in the best possible light. So in 2022, if something changes with the Knicks, if the roster changes, uh, if they lose more games, um, if they can't maintain the defensive intensity, whatever it is, and all of a sudden, instead of being 37 and 29, the team's 28 and 37, then people start to look at all the negatives and sometimes, frankly, lean in way too much to the negatives. But I'm just trying to figure out exactly how I feel about him. And I feel a little bit more comfortable with him on the other side of the cut line. Okay, so now that I've angered half the fan bases, uh, especially the Spurs, who kept teasing me with players who I wanted to include in this list and uh, ended up not slotting any in, let's recap the teams. It's Capella, Randall, Turner, Siakam, Vucevic, Sabonis at the bigs, McCollum, Van Vliet, Smart, Lowry, Brogdon, De'Aaron Fox, uh, Gilgis Alexander, and Ja Morant as the smalls, and then a ton of wings. I mean, hey, it's the modern NBA. Tobias Harris, Joe Ingles, Jalen Brown, Brandon Ingram, Zach Levine, Mikael Bridges, Michael Porter Jr., Robert Covington, and Gordon Hayward, and Joe Harris. Correction, I replaced Joe Harris with Batum. 2021, thinking basketball, sub-all-stars. Please let me know who you think was the biggest snub, and, and tell me why. You know, don't just tell me um, how dumb I am, <laughs> which, I mean, you can do that if you want, if you want. You can have a separate message for just my my pea-sized intellect. Uh, that's perfectly acceptable, but I'm hoping if you have a snub, make make a compelling case, you know, either either point to some data or point to some things that you think the player is doing really well in the context of the team. Remember to check out HelloFresh. That's HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball12. And then you enter the promo code ThinkingBasketball12 to get those 12 free meals. Great way to support the podcast. The best way to support the podcast and every endeavor Thinking Basketball related is to go to Patreon.com slash ThinkingBasketball and sign up in one of the subscription tiers there. Different tiers get you different access. Um, to different content. We have extra content, we have articles, we have extra videos that are put out and things of this nature. And if you're in the top tier, we have about every month a uh, Q&A, a live Q&A, which is pretty cool. It's like a live podcast uh, where subscribers ask me questions. We get to chat in audio back and forth in our Discord community. We have our next one coming up in the next week or two. I, I don't even know what day it is right now. So that is it for me. Hope you enjoyed this one. It's always one of my favorite podcasts to do every year. It's always one of the most challenging and requires the most work. And this year's was probably the hardest one that I've done. Once again, thanks as always for listening all the way to the end. And of course, wherever you are out there in the world, I hope you're having a great day.